Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about faith. Recently, we talked about the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? But we want to take a step further and talk about what does it mean to believe in the gospel with an emphasis on that belief aspect. And joining me today, we have a couple of Two Cities team members. We have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Hey, John. And we have Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and dive in. What do we want to say about the nature of faith? I guess we should maybe pick up a bit where we left off last week. Last week, we discussed a little bit about present debates uh, around on the blogosphere about the definition of the gospel. And we uh, evaluated the kind of discourse that's been going on and how to how we think we might proceed uh, in a way that is healthy and encouraging. And then also we provided some of our own definitions of the gospel. But I wonder if we could get into the issue of faith by addressing kind of what we addressed last week, the current debates over the definition of the gospel. And Amber, I know you had some thoughts on that. So what do you think? So I've been paying attention to this conversation a bit, but doing it again from more of a philosophical perspective. And the question that I keep asking myself is, are we maybe talking past each other in some ways because we're not asking a question that we should be asking first before some of these other definitional questions? Um, And that is what, you know, what does it mean to believe something? And so that kind of throws us into the area of epistemology or the study of how we know what we know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think many of the disputes going on right now are fundamentally due to contrasting perspectives on this question. So one, one thing that's really helped me a lot just to get some conceptual categories comes from a scholar who I love and really appreciate and respect named Esther Meek. She has a book called Loving to Know that really helps just transform the way I saw a lot of things, but I found to be very, very helpful to import into lots of different conversations. This one is a great example. And Esther talks about in her book how we all have an epistemic default or this subcutaneous epistemological layer, she calls it. So it's, we have this paradigm that we've acquired or inherited that lives under our skin, and it's the way that we indwell our world. And this isn't a bad thing that we have one of these. It's just what it means to be a creature. Um, These are good things, but they do require us looking back on them and considering what sort of paradigm it is that we live in, and if it possibly is a defective one. And so Esther talks about how in modernity, we live under the idea that knowledge is things like statements or information or facts or proofs. So these are things that we acquire, and belief means that we assent to them. And disbelief means that we deny them. But this very idea of what knowledge is and what it means to possess knowledge is built on a binary structure. So like if you can imagine in your mind two columns, one the left column and the right column, and they're a series of juxtaposed opposites. And we indwell this. So it's, it's not hard to figure out what this is. Like if I say, if I throw out the word fact, 
what's the opposite of fact? It would be like an opinion or an interpretation. So facts are juxtaposed to opinions and interpretations. They stand against opinions and interpretations. Opinions and interpretations are often considered contaminants to facts. Uh, so we try to keep them separate and divorced. And we do the same thing for reason and emotion. We do the same thing for theory and application. We see this a lot in sermons. Pastors mm -hmm. spend 40 minutes talking about the theory. And then the last 10 minutes or however long, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, let's get in some application points. Mm -hmm. And the struggle is oftentimes there's like a chasm between theory and application or between the head and the hands. And we've identified this as a problem. And it's largely because of this epistemic default that we have. We have a dualism between mind and body. We have a dualism between reality and, what, and appearance. So what is real versus what appears to be. And with that is this contrast between objective and subjective. And those two things are at war with one another. Another example would be science and art. And this is one thing that's really interesting about science and art is there are two different ways of looking at life. Science is going to try to dissect everything down to the bit to get mm. to the atomic level of things. Mm. And that's how we figure out, you know, what is at the core of life or what is the, the ultimate bedrock of existence. The truth is in the bits. And everything else, we want to slice it away and just keep our bits in Petri dishes. Whereas art is all about bringing together parts and moving them around and looking at them from different angles and perspectives. To the scientists, that seems imprecise. It seems like a panic attack waiting to happen. You mentioned like a kaleidoscopic hole and they don't get very excited. <laughs> so how does this like fit into this present conversation? Well, I think there's a couple of ways that we see it manifesting itself in our discourse. One is you, you have those who want to identify what the gospel is. The nature of their investigation is to find the truth nugget, the core, the central concept of the gospel. And they do that by removing all of the excess parts and getting smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more precise to kind of hit the, the bedrock of truth. And then you have others who are going to say, no, the gospel is this big kaleidoscopic story narrative that we get caught up in. It's many metaphors. It's a multidimensional picture. Um, and it's all true and part of a cohesive whole. Well, to, to the one side, <laughs> that sounds like you're going to introduce contaminants to the purity of the gospel, if you think about it like that. To the other side, it looks like to slice these parts down into bits is to lose the gospel. It's to lose the robustness of what we have in Christ. When you have this binary structure and you have people looking at the other sort kind of from the opposite end of the binary in some cases, it creates a lot of confusion and makes discourse really complicated. And one of the things that's really hard to do when we look at a binary structure like this is for Christians, where do we situate faith? Is faith on the left side of the binary or is it on the right side of the binary? And some people are going to say like faith is rational and it's warranted and they spend a lot of time legitimizing faith on the basis of the left side of the binary. And other people are going to say faith is irrational. And if you have any warrant, then you've destroyed faith. Um, and they situate faith on the right side of the binary. 
And then other people are going to say like, oh, faith is is rational. You believe these things, but also your affections are involved in it. So you believe it and you're overjoyed about it. <laughs> and while that tends to be more of this approach to try to have more of a holistic person, I think the problem with that is they still situate it on this binary system. Uh, they haven't subverted that paradigm. Uh, so I think that's a big question for us to think about today is, are there ways that we can think about faith that move us outside of this binary structure and reimagine it in a way that is more holistic and ultimately healthier and more true to the images that scripture leaves us with? Yeah, Amber, that's very interesting. I wonder how we can uh, subvert that paradigm uh, and that binary thinking about which side faith is on. Logan, what thoughts do you have about where faith ought to be situated in that series of binaries that Amber has laid out for us and how we might want to think about what subverting that paradigm or getting around that paradigm might look like? So actually, I do think that coming from a Pauline scholar perspective, I think that if we start translating Pistis as trust, we can actually break out from some of these binaries that, uh, Amber, you're describing. I think a really tragic uh, translational reality that's come our way is that pistio, the verb, is translated with the word believe, which isn't necessarily just always used in context of assent, i.e. cognitive assent. Mm -hmm. However, the word belief is usually associated with cognitive assent. And so the fact that we have the Greek word pistio being translated as believe, where we have the, the noun form of that verb pistis being translated as faith, I think really obscures something crucial there. I think pistio only ever means one thing in Greek, and the verb means to trust someone. And as we can get into this more later, but in those Pauline contexts where the noun pistis is used next to the verb pistio, it means trust as a noun. And I think trust is a really good category that doesn't fit on either side of these binaries for a couple of reasons. First, I don't think that it's sustainable that at least in normal Greek culture and in as well as in Paul's actual use of the term, that trust is completely fideistic in the sense that it is irrational or it is not based on evidence or it doesn't actually have any kind of connection to empirical reality. I do think that when people trust people, it's because they have in some way evidence of being trustworthy. I think for Paul, that is raising Jesus from God raising Jesus from the dead, or it could also exist in many, you know, smaller contexts like I do something nice for you, then you trust me with something because you think I'm nice and a trustworthy person. However, at the same time, it's not it doesn't fit necessarily the normal canons of rationality because you could say, oh, well, this person has proven you know, trustworthy in the past, or they've demonstrated positive qualities, so I'm entrusting something to them. And a logician would come by and say, ah, yes, but isn't it logically possible that they were only trustworthy then, but they won't be trustworthy in the future? And you'd have to say, well, yes, because trusting someone isn't this logically airtight commitment. It's not something that you can say, I'm 100% sure that this is you know, this is going to work in my favor by trusting someone. Trust is always a risk. While it is always predicated upon certain empirical realities that demonstrate someone's trustworthiness, it is also inherently a dangerous act because you put yourself in a state of vulnerability. 
And I think this is what Paul means when he uses the phrase en Christo. The only other really, really common use of en of that of that phrase with a personal noun in a personal noun or like in Christo, as in in the Messiah, in Jesus, in John, in something, is the phrase en Heidi in Greek, which means in Hades. And what that means is to be in the hands of Hades, to be in, in control of the god of the underworld, Hades. And I think when Paul says that you are in, Christ, in Christo, he means that you are in the hands of Christ. It means, i.e., your outcome is determined by him, which fits really well with this concept of pistis, right? I'm putting myself in the hands of Christ because I trust him, and I trust that he's proven himself trustworthy for various reasons. And yet at the same time, it's nonetheless still risky, because there's always that fear that maybe Christ or God might not make good on his promise. So I think that there's this kind of tension in the act of trust, that it is both a risk, i.e. you're deferring to the power of another person that you cannot control. And yet at the same time, it is also based on this uh, evidence of trustworthiness. And so I like to define trust as the action that defers action to the action of another. So faith is very much an action, but it's an action of deference, right? I.e., I am acting to give something into your hands that is presumably for my benefit. And I'm hoping on the basis of some past empirical evidence that you will also act as you did then. You act now as you did then or act in the future as you did then. And so it's my action of deferring to you. And it is up to you now. It is up to this, the one in whom I put my trust for that action to be fulfilled. So therefore, it is the act in which I defer some positive outcome to the action of another person, which I think fits really nicely on both sides of that divide. Well, I actually wouldn't say that it fits nicely on both sides of the divide. I would say it doesn't indwell that paradigm at all. <laughs> I think it offers us it, oh, yeah, a, sure. <laughs> a complete reimagination of that in such a beautiful way. And I would say also kind of an intuitive way. Meek does an excellent job of talking about how these binary forms of knowing, it's not how we actually go about the knowing process when we're not thinking about it. <laughs> so for example, if my standard of knowledge was absolute certainty, right? First of all, that's a very modern construct to make mm -hmm. certainty a criteria of knowledge, criteria, the criterion of knowledge. But when I engage in interpersonal relationships, right? If I have to ask myself the question, you know, do I want to agree to meet my friend for ice cream because there is the logical possibility that the friend could not show up and decide to do something else. You know, am I certain that the friend will show up? If I have to go through that process before I decide, okay, I'm going to commit to meeting a friend for ice cream, or I'm going to go meet this friend for ice cream, we become paralyzed. Like you, you can't actually have an interpersonal relationship like that. Nobody can. But on the other hand, it's not like my relationship with that person is contentless, right? Like, I think this is what you were referring to with empirical evidence in the sense that I do know this person. I know this person's actions. I know what is characteristic for this person. And so I am going to put my trust. And, and that's like the energy that fuels that interpersonal relationship that can't be restricted to either side of the binary. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, imagine if we went about relationships like as you described, right? If we were like, oh, you're asking me to trust you. Well, I know that you've proven 
trustworthy to me in the past. However, don't you agree that it's logically possible that you might not prove trustworthy in the future? You'd have to say, well, yes, I guess it's logically possible. Ah, yes. Well, then I guess I just shouldn't trust you ever then, right? Like, I think, I think it, like, when, you know, all of a sudden when we're talking about, you know, God and trusting God, all of a sudden we have these crazy standards that are, you know, like, prohibitive. Yeah, they have, they have, they have no real analogy to any way that we experience people in the world. Mm -hmm. And obviously, God is a different, you know, kind of being than we are. But that doesn't mean that the epistemological restraints that we experience in our daily lives, therefore, go away when we talk about God. Yeah, there's um, a sense in which we make it so much harder <laughs> by imposing these extra criterion standards and ways of processing through things that we don't have in our relationships with our family members and with our friends that result in a relationship with God that has constant obstacles put in its path. It's actually a lot easier than we, we make it out to be. Hmm. What about faith or pistis outside of a context of a relationship? So an example that comes to mind that I, I think is pretty interesting for this conversation is in James. James says that even the demons believe, right? I, I'm curious about this because, I mean, in some sense, the demons have a quote-unquote relationship to their creator. But I, I'm curious about that dynamic. Additionally, why I find this passage so interesting is because on the one hand, this is a great passage for highlighting the fact that, as James is arguing, faith that works is dead, that faith needs to be active, etc. But at the same time, there's an irony there because the passage seems to assume that to believe is, at least in this passage, to have that kind of mental assent, knowledge, etc. of the creator of God. But these relational trusting dynamics that we're talking about don't necessarily seem to be part of the the passage what do you guys think yeah. about, about that well yeah i mean I, I think i think that's kind of the i mean the utter irony of that of that statement is that if i say hey john you know i trust you with my life and then john you say oh well uh you know will you trust me with this small thing and i go no 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 mm -hmm. like but but wait you know you said you trust me you say you trust me with anything right and I'd be like, oh, well, well, yeah, definitely. And then you go, okay, well, then will you trust me with this really minor thing? No, 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 right? Mm -hmm. That's what it means to have a dead trust, right? Mm -hmm. Like, my trust in you is, is, is therefore dead. Like, it, it doesn't actually inform our relationship, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think the irony of that statement is that, you know, you could talk about pistis meaning trust, but you can also talk about pistis as a dead trust in a kind of ironic way. Mm. Um, and I think that that's kind of what it means for the the demons to believe, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Generally, I think lexicographically, I'd say that the way I see pistis developing um, in early Christianity is that pistis pistio ends up you you can trust in certain realities, like mm -hmm. I trust that X, Y, and Z. Then that becomes I assent to and I believe this, mm. or I know that equivalent mm -hmm. to, to no. James is on the cusp of that development that you can have demons trusting in the fact mm -hmm. that God is one, mm -hmm. but in a kind of ironic sense, which makes sense because demons for James are an inherent self-contradiction, right? Mm -hmm. They're daimons, they're some kind of divine being that therefore that somehow still oppose God. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, their, their existence is fundamentally in contradiction with themselves. So mm -hmm. it would be natural that they have this kind of wacko 
expression of pistis naturally mm. so yeah that those, those are my thoughts there i mean i think i think i think it makes sense if you think of it that way like you have a dead trust mm-hmm. like it, it is meaningless if i you know don't trust you with with anything mm-hmm. well yeah it does seem to me that that trajectory that you described seems to me very very accurate of course there's some implicit issues here about where we might date james and that's yeah. a that's a fun conversation but i i do think like when you look at the the gospels for example like with the the paralytic who is dropped down through the roof it says like in mark that jesus saw their faith you know, their pistis, mm. he saw their pistis, which is a really interesting example. If we were to think of pistis strictly in terms of mental ascent, that would, of course, not make sense. But this idea of this kind of enacted or embodied trust mm-hmm. that these buddies would literally drop their friend down to to this person that they trust will do something helpful for for their friend. You know, I, I think that's a that's a really great example for me when I think about the nature of pistis. Yeah, I, I love that example. It's one of my favorites. I, I often look at the James passage uh, when talking about these things because what I, I wonder if James is helping to give us a more robust notion of belief. Like we can fall into these impoverished understandings of belief. And so when he's refusing the binary, if you will, between faith and works, and he's saying, no, you can't, you can't just cast those on opposite sides of the binary and think of one as being the contaminant of the other (laughs) or one being over and against the other. Uh, But he's wanting to really fill out our, our understanding of what belief or what trust is. And the, the story of the friends lowering their paralytic through the roof, it's a beautiful picture of enacted faith. And it's funny because you can ask the question, are those friends being irrational? Mm. Like they do something a little wacky, right? They drop their friend through yep. the roof. You yep, know? Yep. But, uh, when you're talking about just our normal way of being in the world and how we act in social settings, that's not typically one of the things that you see very frequently. So it's a little bit wacky, but it doesn't seem like it actually is wacky. Why? Because they trust the Messiah. Mm-hmm. They trust the healer. They know who Jesus is. And they operate on the basis of that. So it's almost like they they live under a different horizon, right? Mm-hmm. Like their horizon, this former closed horizon, has been broken open by the incarnate Christ. And he's given us this much bigger horizon and called us to live under it, mm-hmm. which absolutely changes everything. Mm. (laughs) He introduces possibilities into it that were not possible before, like the lame shall walk and the blind Mm. shall see and the dead shall rise. It's not a logical possibility in a closed finite horizon. Mm. And he broke open that closure and introduced these new possibilities. And so now like living a life of faith is to live in this world, right? It's not some ethereal otherworldliness, but to live in this world under a much bigger horizon, the horizon of the kingdom. And I think that that's what those friends were doing when they were lowering their the paralytic to Jesus. I think that example from Mark is really interesting because I think it, I think it shows that even though pistis comes to expression and it's indicated by action, it's not as if 
you're not able to pick out the fact of trust itself, right? So mm-hmm. um, I know that, you know, lots of people try to emphasize that, you know, pistis maybe means something like faithfulness or allegiance. But I think that the reason why I have issues with that, which we will probably come to in the next podcast, I have issues with that is because I think that um, you're still able to pick out trust as an item uh, or as an aspect of who you are that that generates these kinds of actions, right? Like, why do I entrust things to you? Because I trust you. And even though my trust is seen and indicated by this action, it is nonetheless the case that it is meaningful to say, I trust you, and that is why I do these things. And that's why Jesus can look at those actions and say, ah, I don't just see your actions, but I also see that you trust. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like recognizing that someone loves you, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you if you just say, oh, you know, like, I see all these wonderful things that they do for me, but I don't know if they love me. It's like, well, mm. but have you seen all the things that they've done? Well, yeah. Well, well, then if you've seen all these things, then that's supposed to be an indication of something more fundamental that's generating those actions. And I think what's important here also is that there's evidence on both sides, right? So Christ is the demonstration of God's righteousness. As that demonstration, he functions as a basis upon which people can see God as trustworthy. And therefore, they trust. And then that trust becomes to be demonstrated in their actions. So there's a demonstration on both sides. There's God setting forth Jesus as a demonstration of his own righteousness, proving his trustworthiness. And then there, is, there are people who trust in that God, you know, placing themselves in the hands of Christ placing themselves potentially in a risky situation, but then that trust coming to be demonstrated in acts that evince this form of trusting in one who is trustworthy. So I think that there's, there's visuality on both sides of the equation here. There's trust as a response to a visual demonstration of God's righteousness and God's trustworthiness. And then there's, you know, believers demonstrating their own trust in the one who has demonstrated his own trust. So I think I think those visual components are really important, and I think that's what's happening, obviously, obviously in Mark. Yeah, that's really great, and I think that's a that's a great place for us to to conclude this conversation. Of course, there's a lot more that we could say about the nature of pistis. Uh, how do we translate it? What does it mean? The broader conceptuality in which it's to be found. These sorts of things, and we'll have to return for some conversations later on down the road. But I think this is a really helpful way to begin that conversation, orient us a little bit to what does it mean to believe the gospel and thinking about that in terms of our trust in the one who is trustworthy. I think that's a beautiful thought for us to reflect on further. But uh, thank you guys for uh, both joining us today. Yeah, thanks, John. It was fun to chat with you guys. Yeah, thanks, John. like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com.